Amen. Power and authority. You know what the difference is? We, we implicitly know the difference. Power refers to your ability to bring about your will. The, the ability that you have to effect your will on those around you or the environment around you. Okay? Authority refers to the right you have to enforce your will on others around you. When we speak of power, we speak of one's strength or the force one can muster to accomplish a task. But when we speak of authority, we speak of the legitimacy one has to exercise force. Okay? So authority inherently refers to legitimate use of power. Legitimacy. We kick back against authority. Even legitimate authority, we kick back against it. I think that it's part of what it means to be an American, you know, to have this, to have this deep-seated distrust or, or, or perhaps suspicion of authority. Who are you to tell me I can't do that? Who are you to tell me I have to do that? This is America. I'll do what I want, Right? People went up to Alaska, and Alaska's being ruined by Americans moving up there. But Alaska, people went to Alaska so they can do just that, do what they want to do. We kick back against authority. We have a love-hate relationship with it. Okay, we love it when we can put someone in power who imposes our will on people, but we hate it when the other side or someone else has the, has the say and they're imposing their will on us. It's, it's this complicated thing that we have as people precisely because we want our way done on earth as it is in heaven, or so we think. We want our will to be done, and when we can extend our will and have some representative of that will act on our behalf, we're happy. But when someone else does it, we're not happy at all. We can think back to the election you know, people were saying that people were making a big deal about Trump not saying that he would support the results of the election. And then as soon as the election happened and the other side, who had just been complaining that he wouldn't support the decision of the election, they had a hissy fit, didn't they? Hypocrisy floods the human race, not just a political party. We don't like authority. We kick back on it at the home. In the home, we kick back on it in the schools, in our workplaces. We kick back on it in the church. In fact, I would dare say, we kick back on it even in regards to God. Who's God to say? And I think perhaps this is even more so the case when it comes to the person of Jesus. Precisely because so many false images of Jesus have been constructed where in many cases he's presented as the perfect boyfriend if you listen to a lot of contemporary music or he's a great life coach he's a great sage who comes along and offers you some great principles but ultimately he's just there to be your buddy or your pal he's there to golf with or shoot hoops with or whatever that's what a lot of people have come to think about when it comes to Jesus. And so when it comes then to a point where Jesus is telling us to do something, who are you to say? 
Who are you to say? But this book has been confronting us with the question, who is Jesus? Is Jesus really worth dying for? The Gospel of Mark, again, was written to people in the first century who were suffering under the persecution of Rome. And they were being asked that question, and the answer to them meant the difference between life and death. If Jesus is worth dying for, then that means I must be faithful to him, even if that means getting tossed into the arena. But if Jesus is ultimately of no account, then I'm going to go ahead and offer that incense to Caesar and be about my way. So your Christian life, your eternal life, is bound up in you answering the question, who is Jesus? And a fact of Jesus' personhood that we must come to grips with is the question and matter about his authority. Is Jesus an authority? That question has practicality whether you're an unbeliever here today or you're a believer. For those of you who are here, and I don't know the heart of you. I don't know your heart, okay? I believe that you are Christians. There's a few of you I'm suspicious about. Just kidding. <laughs> but there may be some in here who are questioning and doubting. There may be some of you who are, who are here primarily for cultural reasons. And you think that perhaps that Jesus is not one who you have to seriously reckon with. The fact of the matter is, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, and you have the approbation of the Father, this is my Son, listen to him, you are then confronted with the authoritative statement of the Father verifying that Jesus does in fact have authority. And so your eternal destiny hinges upon whether or not you will recognize it and respond and believers, we kick against the goads. We kick against the goads. Have you ever seen movies, perhaps? I don't, I'm not sure any of us live in a, live in a place where they, they old school farm and, and they have an ox pulling a cart. But maybe some of you have in a movie or maybe you've been to some place in the world like I have where they do that. And they poke the ox to keep it moving forward. And the animal will kick back against it, wasting time and energy. It's a futile attempt to resist the inevitable. We kick against the goads. God wants us to prosper and flourish in our faith. And yet, we keep forgetting that the rules and the precepts and the commandments and the law that God has for us is for our good. And so instead of saying, yes, Lord, you have the words of life and running to him, and we find every excuse we can to not heed or to reinterpret so that way Jesus turns out really saying what we knew all along. We kick against the goads and make life harder and less enjoyable than our Father would have for us. Now that right there brings me to it. If you're doing Christianity right, sooner or later you're going to find yourself at odds with Jesus. Because you have a will. And he has a will. 
and you want your way to be done. You have your tastes, you have your interests, you have your desires, and sooner or later you're going to find those tastes, interests, and desires, priorities even, at odds with those of Jesus. And the question will be then, what do you do in that moment? Do you rebel? Do you resist? Or do you comply? Now, if on the other hand you're thinking, me and Jesus are always on the same page. If you're looking at me going, Ben, that, that's, that's crazy talk. All my priorities line up with Jesus' priorities. Every dream I have, Jesus is cool with. He gives me a big thumbs up every day. Well, I'm sorry to say, but there's no way that a sinner is always in sync with a sinless creator. And if Jesus is always on the same page with you, then the Jesus you're thinking is on the same page with you is a construct of your mind. The real Jesus is a lion, and he reigns. And he points out where we are in darkness because we must have light in our lives or we will never, ever, ever walk into his path. So if that never happens, be wary and turn. In this passage, which is all about Jesus and his authority, we learn three things. We learn the fact of his authority, we learn the nature of his authority, and we see the application of his authority. Because whatever else this world may tell you, Jesus is the authority. And as his people, we recognize that he is king. And so we are obligated then to follow his commandments and his precepts. But right now, we're looking at this passage because we're going to see a people who did not receive him as king. And so, we see the fact of Jesus' authority asserted in this context then, starting at verse 27. Now, to set the stage, you've got to remember that it was just the day before. If you go back up to, um, to, chapter tw- or to verse 12 and chapter 11, Jesus is en route into Jerusalem, On his way into Jerusalem, he sees that fig tree, he curses it, he goes into, he finishes the trip into Jerusalem, he disrupts it, he kicks over tables, he drives people out, he shuts down the operations of the temple, and then he goes home. The next day, as he's coming back to Jerusalem, we read that Peter, hey, that fig tree you cursed is is dead, and that happens, and then they finish their trek into Jerusalem which is where we begin right now. So this is just the day after he had just purged the temple and shut down operations in the week leading up to Passover. So he picked like the busiest time of the year to make his statement. And he's walking around the temple. Now what this signifies then is it verifies he had just done a symbolic prophetic type act. If you remember last week, I said that his his actions in shutting it down were very much in keeping with the actions that prophets in the Old Testament would take when they would take a symbolic act. Because the very next day, business is back as usual. Everything's up and running the way it was before. And he's not doing it again. He, He doesn't shut it down for a second day in a row. He's just walking around the temple. 
But the religious leaders are really, really angry. And so they immediately seek him out. In verse 27, it says that they saw him and uh, they, they saw him and they come up to him. The three groups, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now they come in mass. So by saying that all the groups came, you see that he really ruffled feathers and they're trying to impress upon you that they came as a show of force. They're coming as a group in all their glory and all their fury. And they want to scare him. They want to intimidate him. They want to put him in his place. And so they come up to him. And this isn't a question, okay? This isn't a question. This isn't a Q&A session. This isn't a, an interrogation even. If you look in verse 27, or in verse 28, I mean, it says, And they said to him, and then they ask him a question. What this means is they said a question. They didn't ask a question. If you look down at what Jesus does in verse 29, when Jesus says, I will ask you a question, okay, that's the Greek word that means he's actually posing a question to them. In verse 28, when they say to him, that's the word for just speaking, a declarative statement. What this signifies then is they're doing what we oftentimes do. They're making an assertion in question form. The question that you hear is, by what authority? But they're not really asking a question about authority. They're saying, who do you think you are? You don't have any authority here. That's, that's what they're asserting. They're accusing him. Even though it comes in the form of a question. Now, the, they're thinking in terms of human accreditation. In their minds, there's only two people, two groups, who could have given him authority to come in and disrupt the temple like he had just done. One was the power of Rome, but they know that wasn't going to happen. Or, in their minds, they're the authority. So, they would have been the second group that could have given him authorization, and they sure didn't do that. So, that leaves Jesus flapping out in the breeze, or so they think. You operated without any authority. Who do you think you are? They, like we so often, want to know, who do you think you are? Who has given you the permission to tell me this? What is the lawful authority that you have to impose and disrupt my life? We want people who are accredited and certified, or else they're not worth listening to. When I read this, and I was thinking about that, I thought of that old Frasier episode where Frasier and his brother Niles, if you remember that, that series, they're both these very well-educated, hoity-toity, uh, snobby psychiatrists, but they're always bickering and fighting. So and there's this episode where these two guys who have both gone to the most prestigious psychiatry schools, they go to, to get counseling about why they as brothers can't get along. And they're in this counseling session, and the counselor is just busy telling them how dysfunctional their brotherly relationship is. And after a while, he get, this, this counselor gets frustrated, and he, and he decides to go to the restroom to take a break. And while he's gone, they're sitting there berating this counselor about how dumb this guy is. And they look, and they see that 
he has his diploma on the wall, and he went to some no-name school. Well, this guy's just, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's, a, he, he's an idiot. And so they slap each other on the back, and they walk out. Okay? We do that. If someone does not meet the standard of credentialing that we want, we go ahead and dismiss them. And that's exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, the chief priests, and the elders are all doing here. Jesus, you haven't got the accreditation of man. You have no authority. You have no authority. Now, far from being put in his place when they say this to him, Jesus shows that he's in control. In fact, if you look at verse 29, he turns the tables on them. He employs the Socratic method, in a sense, but he turns the tables on them by showing, I'm not only not intimidated by you and your pretensions of authority, I'm in charge here. So I'm going to ask you a question. And if you answer me, then I'll respond to your question. And then he follows it up with a second, answer me. At the end of his, in verse 30, at the end of asking about John's baptism, he makes the demanding, answer me. That's the voice of someone who's in control. That's the voice of someone who's in charge. He is not out of his league. Have you ever wondered why, of all the things Jesus could have said, why he says, tell me about John's baptism? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, if I was in Jesus' shoes, and I suspect if you were in Jesus' shoes, at least some of you who are like me, you would have said something like this. My authority, my authority's in your face, pal. I heal the sick. I cast out demons. I suspend the laws of physics and walk on water. I create matter out of thin air. That's my authority. Okay? But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Nor does he say, I operate on the authority of the Father. Instead, Jesus asks them a question about John. Have you ever wondered why? How does John and his baptism even factor in here? Well, remember that just the day before, Jesus had shut down the temple operations. Now, think about what that means in, the, in their mind as we talked about. How does one get right with God? You offer a sacrifice. If you've sinned and want to repent, how do you show your sorrow and, and make atonement for your actions? You sacrifice. You go to the temple and you sacrifice. In other words, in their mind, the work of the temple is absolutely essential for right relationship with God. It's essential. Jesus shutting it down had thereby put him in a position where he was causing great dissonance in their mind. He's, he, he's suggesting then that people either don't need to be made right with God or that the temple is not a necessary part of being made right with God. This is where John comes in. John came into the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance. People would stream to him and he would preach, repent. 
And they, as a sign of their remorse and their repentance, would then be baptized. Where does that even fit in to a concept where the temple is necessary for forgiveness? Nowhere in John's ministry do they have to go to the temple. Repentance is something you do by expressing your remorse and coming to God directly. John did not just forerun the person of Jesus. He was a forerunner of a way of relating to God. A way of relating to God on the basis of confession and repentance and faith. John was a forerunner of a time when the work of the temple is unnecessary. And so his baptism signified that. People could be restored to their relationship with God through repentance. They didn't need the sacrifices. Through repentance. And so if John's baptism was from heaven, that means that God approved of it. And if God approved of John saying that the temple is not necessary for right relationship with me, well then, me shutting down the temple then is in sync with that. Of course, if John and his baptism were from men, which is a code for where it was deceptive and misleading and untrue, and that's another story. So if John is legitimate, I'm legitimate. That's how John ties in. And of course, John had an adoring crowd. And you see these cowardly leaders here. Jesus wants them to be confronted by their own unbelief and their hard-heartedness. It's pretty incredible. Uh, it says here that uh, in verse 31, they come in and they, and they start talking about it to each other. Okay, if we say this, this is how he's going to respond. But then it says in verse 32, when it comes to the matter of if we say from man, notice how they don't finish their own question. It's as if that's what they believe. They believed it was from man, but they're too chicken to say it. They're too chicken to admit that all they strut around like peacocks, they're afraid of losing the acclaim and the praise of the people who adore John. They're too afraid to say what they believe. And I believe this has a profound thing to say for us. If you are one who finds your center of identity and center of legitimacy in the opinion of people, sooner or later, you are going to be insincere with what you say and do because you want to cater to the people who give you your power. That's part of why Jesus says, don't fear men. Don't fear men. Because then you'll base your life around keeping their appraise and their high opinion. That's exactly what these people were doing. And it had led them to abandon God. Hold on to God and his word and his authority, and you can be sincere. But these guys play politics, okay? They can't in good conscience say it's from God because then, of course, their unbelief is revealed. They can't say what they believe, which is it's not of God, because then the people would turn on them and they would lose prestige. It reminds me of the judge in Miracle on 34th Street. I love that movie. Okay, remember when he's asked to decide, it's put, it's put plainly to him, is there a Santa Claus? 
And everybody's like, oh. And, and his polit- political pal is like, oh, don't, don't, don't say there's not a Santa Claus because then there's a lot of political ramifications. But at the same time, he, you know, he's not going to just say, oh, yeah, there's a Santa So he, he's torn, and finally he you know, sounds all wise. In the great tradition of American ju- jurisprudence, we're going to keep an open mind. Right? <laughs> and he punts. That's exactly what they do here. They punt. We don't know. They knew. They were just too chicken to say. So Jesus says, well, then I won't tell you either. Even though Jesus had told them implicitly. He was linked with John. And if they had answered John's question, or if they had answered Jesus' question about John, they would have found their own question about Jesus answered. The answer was one and the same. It's from God. So then Jesus tells them a not-so-thinly-veiled parable. Now, in virtually every other parable, people come up to him, what do you mean? They don't in this case. I mean, at the end, in verse 12, they know that Jesus said this against them. They may not have understood all the details, but they caught the gist. And they were not happy. You see, what Jesus does here, he, he creates his own parable but he alludes back to something that they were well acquainted with. The first verse of his parable is almost a word-for-word quotation of Isaiah 5, where about 700 years before Jesus, the prophet Isaiah used the metaphor of a vineyard to describe the people. And the exact same wording is here. God, he comes, he builds it, he plants it, he erects a wall to protect it, a tower, a, a wine press. He does all this great stuff. So it's almost word for word. So they would have remembered that because they were students of the word. At the end of that song in verse 5 of Isaiah 5, because of their fruitlessness, God comes, tears down the wall, they're destroyed, and whoever isn't destroyed is sent into exile. So they know that that imagery portends bad things for them. So then in Jesus' parable here, of course, it begins with the same language from Isaiah, and it ends with them being destroyed and the garden and the vineyard being given to someone else. So they may not understand all the details, but they get the general gist of what Jesus is saying, and they're not happy. This was, not a, thinly, this was a very thinly veiled parable. So, but notice here that after sending so many people, they thought the son was so little account that they treat him utterly shamefully. Not only do they kill him, but they like dump his body over the wall. Don't even bury him so that he'll serve as carrion for wild animals. And then the real onus of this parable then is in verse 10 where Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, and he says that unexpectedly and surprisingly, the thing that you thought was so insignificant has, by God's power, become the most important one in the entire structure. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so... They're hearing him say, you people think I'm nothing. But God is making me the most important stone in this entire edifice. Okay? So, Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Son of God who has 
the approbation of the Father. And we have to listen to him because his authority is a fact. But here's the problem for us. All of us are like these tenants. God has not just given care and attention to the church or to Israel. He's lavished the human race with blessings and gifts. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. And we spurn him continually. And the end result of this is destruction. Now there's no good news in that. But how do we get then from being these people who, who rebel continually to being people who, who embrace Jesus? How? I mean, Romans, Romans 5, or Romans 8, sorry, Romans 8, 7 tells us that the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, and it cannot submit to God's law. In fact, Romans 8, 8 goes further and states it very bluntly, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So how do we get from there to being children at the table? How? If we're continually spurning God's blessings and God's gifts, how? It's because God is a converting God. And you read about it in Jeremiah 31 where God says that he will make the house of, or he will put his law into their hearts and he will write it on their hearts. God does open heart surgery on us. He takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. If God leaves us alone, we are dead rebels. We are dead men walking. But we serve a converting God. And he comes and he opens up our rebellious chests and he writes his law on our hearts. And he makes us willing and able henceforth to live for him. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. So then what is the nature of Jesus' authority? The nature of his authority is, is several fold. His is a patient authority. If you look at this parable over and over, in fact, he presents the human landowner almost, almost as ridiculously naive. I mean, how many times would you send somebody, if you were in this landowner's position, how many times would you send somebody and have them get killed or beat before you realize that the tenants weren't going to reply and respond? But the landowner is patient. He's patient. He's patient. He sends everybody he has until he's down to his son. And then he sends him. He's patient. It's decisive. At the end, every knee will bow. Okay? At the end, there is justice. You may think that God's failure to act in the now is a sign that he's either ignorant or that he's not paying attention. But God's authority is decisive. He's a providing authority. Notice at the beginning, he sets this garden up with everything that it needs for success. That's exactly what he does for you and for me. He rules for our good. Did you know that the reason Jesus reigns is to ensure that every one of his elect comes to faith? He rules for your good. He's not trying to use you. He rules for your good. And he's an abiding authority. He says in verse 10 that he's the stone that the builders rejected. The stone. You'll learn in Daniel chapter 2 that there's this image that Nebuchadnezzar dreams about. And this image gets struck by this rock that's hewn not by a human hand. And it comes and it smacks it and the whole image crumbles away. And that stone becomes a mountain that fills the earth. And later in that chapter we learn that that stone is a kingdom that is set up by God. 
This is Jesus. He's the stone that is the cornerstone of a kingdom. And it grows and fills the earth. His kingdom is forever. So how do we apply that? Well, right now, many of you are bored. I thought about that. I thought, you know, as I preach this message, I'm going to bore some people. So actually, as I thought about it a little bit more, bore is the acronym here. B, believe him. Believe him. Believe that he is the way to God. Believe that he's acting for your good and that his precepts for you are good. Believe against all the voices of the world, the flesh, and the devil that you are safe and secure in him. Believe him. Oh, obey him. He is Lord. Obey him. If you kick against the goads, what happens? You burn energy. Okay? He wants your good. He wants his glory. He wants people who don't call on him yet to name him as Savior. So obey him. Three, or, or R for bore, R, represent him. Okay? Specifically, act in his name with confidence. As soon as you start proclaiming the gospel to people, they act like you're making something up or that you're being audacious and, and operating on your own authority. When you act on Jesus' authority, you have great power as a parent, as a spouse, as a worker. Represent him. E, entreat him. The last several passages have been about the importance of praying fervently and expectantly. Do you pray vigorously? Or is it just a little ditty you do on Sunday mornings? If he is authoritative, and if all authority in heaven and earth have been given to him, then entreat him. He's gracious and generous to give us what we need. So you may be bored, but remember that I thought about that and bore Believe him, obey him, represent him, and entreat him. Jesus is the authority. Will you submit to it? Let's pray.